Hello, this is Brian Saber, and I am back with Jerry Panis. Jerry, it's great to be here with you. Good to have you, Brian. Thank you. And and I want to share, I've been coming up to Connecticut to Jerry and his wife Felicity's beautiful 250-year-old house in Connecticut, having lunch with them, and we've been getting to know each other. And you may, from time to time, even hear a dog or two barking, and that would be Milo and Millie. And it's really been such an honor and a treat, not only to be having these conversations with you, Jerry, but getting to know you and Felicity better and having you entertain me and bring me into your home, which is so nice of you. Good to have you here. Thank you. Well, in a number of sessions already, we've talked about the board because the board is so important. And I wanted us to dig in on a couple of related issues how boards evolve from founder boards and how the balance of wealth, wisdom, and work changes, what that means in terms of a founder, executive director, reviewing the executive director, which is something we touched on, and some best practices and some advice we could give so many institutions that struggle with these related issues. So where do you want to start on that topic? Oh, my. (laughs) That's a two-day Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. One of the things I feel is important is for boards to remember that resources don't determine decisions. Oh, we don't have a month, enough money for that. Oh, we tried it before. It won't work here. It's not our thing. It's not in the budget. Resources don't determine decisions. Decisions determine resources. Do you get the distinction? Sure, sure. And it gets back to what we talked about when you talked about mission-driven. Exactly. And what causes what, right? Yeah, exactly right. And then I say, forget the old adage, you can't go to the same well all the time. Well, that's exactly where you do go. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah. People who give give. Right. And they give and they give. People have said over time, well, we keep asking them. And it's almost as if the askers are tired of asking, but they Uh, haven't asked the givers, are you tired of giving? They're just making this assumption. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. It's like, are, are you are you twisting their arm? No. Well, if they're giving of their own accord, what's your issue there? Go back and ask again. Yeah. Brian, I have found with organizations I work with and with staff, if you say it can't be done, you're right. <laughs> if you say it can be done, mm-hmm. you are right. Mm. And so you must have... A can-do attitude. So that's a great point. And that relates to founders, executive directors, and board roles, right? Exactly. So let's talk about the evolution of boards. We know that as boards get more mature, the balance of what's needed from the board members changes. And you need a lot more wealth, access to funds, willingness to help cultivate people. And you've got staff doing a lot of the hands-on work. So what do you see in the field as organizations you work with are evolving this way? And where does the founding executive director come in? And how does that relate to what you just talked about, which is the if you say you can't, you can't? Yeah. 
you could almost write a book about founding CEOs. It follows the same pattern, and it is very difficult to follow a founder. And what we recommend, a founder has been there 12 years, and it's time for him or her to retire. I find the most effective thing to do is to hire an interim for perhaps a year who knows that they are not to be part of the selection process. They're just to handle the organization for the year because it's very hard, difficult, sometimes impossible. I've had some uh, to follow a founder. I had one occasion when they had to call in the police. <laughs> How would you like that? To, to remove a founder from really? the office. In other words, the board wanted the founder to leave and the founder yes. simply would not go. Exactly. No matter right. what. Wow. That's, that's an extreme example, yet we know that emotions do run high in this area. So obviously the founder has this massive stake. This is his or her baby. And that's one of the big issues. I'm assuming a related issue, because you touched on this before, is board members are supposed to be reviewing the executive director. The executive director is supposed to really report and to the board and work for the board. But with founders, that's really not Very the case. Neither of those tends to be the case, right? Right. 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 I mean, I find <laughs> the board is working for the founder because it's the founder who brought them all on yeah. to help him or her fulfill a certain vision. Yeah. I'd say don't hold it against anybody right. to come on a uh, founding board just because they have money. Mm. That if you can find a board member who is excited about the project. We have one now in Northern California, and it is now named after her, a founding board member who gave $50 million dollars. Mm. Now, that is worth... Yes. And I would assume that a founder would bring that person on if the founder could find that person. Exactly. Often, it's who you know. You're bringing on your your sister, your lawyer, exactly. two of your best friends, your next door neighbor, yeah. something like that. And yeah. you're not really being strategic. You're passionate and you need to get something off the ground. And the people who really believe in you come on board. Exactly yeah. right. And I'm sure they'd all like to have someone who'd give a whopping gift and sit on the board right away, but don't even know possibly where to find that it, person. Exactly. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't happen often. I have an interesting related question, and it sort of relates to a certain time in my career, because I find this not only with founding executive directors, but with long-term executive directors, because if someone's been there 15, 20, 25 years... They've played a big role in bringing almost every current board member on. Sure, sure. And there's a certain stagnation that's taken place and a certain shift in the balance of power again towards that CEO, ED. And it means the organization's gone in one direction or another for a very long time and has some strengths, but maybe some core weaknesses from that same set of leadership. No question you know about it. Absolutely right. And so it feels like the cycle continues, right? Yeah. Now... It's not exactly founder, but there is some of that founder challenge. Yeah, and Brian, the difficult part is 
do we get somebody to replace the founder mm -hmm. who looks like the founder, works like the founder, and acts like the founder? And I've been at a lot of selection committee meetings. Well, he certainly doesn't act like Joe. Right. And right. it's probably what you want. Right. But it's, hard to swallow, maybe, for the yeah. board. Yeah. And for Joe. And for certainly for Joe. <laughs> to Joe. Yeah, yeah. The dynamics are very difficult. Yeah. And yet we know the board determines the future of the organization. The board is the destiny of the organization. So it's so important to have the right board members. Yes. So we touched on founding CEOs and EDs who won't leave. There are also the founding board members who won't leave. And maybe the board <laughs> has evolved and they still want to do all the work, but the board really needs their wisdom and their wealth. And as you mentioned in the last one, their wallop. So what's the best way to deal with board members who really don't fit the role anymore, but have been extraordinary and are really dedicated? Yeah, we have a document called the report card. And on it, we list, I think, 12 elements that a board member needs to bring to the board. And I used to have the chairman of the Committee on Trusteeship evaluate board members, but now I've actually found it more effective for the board member to fill out the report card mm -hmm. on themselves because they will be honest with themselves. And they may end up, they often do, they end up saying, you know, maybe I'm not bringing to the board everything I should. So it's interesting you talk about report card. I have been really adamant with organizations that every board member should be evaluated in person, one-on-one, -on -one, every year that either the governance committee or the executive committee or some small group of people, or possibly just the board chair president, if he or she has the time, needs to sit down individually once a year to have that discussion with every board member. How was last year for you? What were you able to bring to the organization? Were you happy with it? What are your goals for this year? What leadership positions are you interested in? And so forth. Because I think some of that helps address some of what you're That's talking great. about. That's because great. it becomes clear if someone doesn't have much of a portfolio and isn't doing much, it makes for an awkward conversation and probably helps some board members see their way to becoming former board members. Here's where it becomes difficult. We did a study in Maryland, and Richard Jones had not been to a board meeting in two years. And I said to the CEO, why do you keep Richard on the board? Well, he said, Richard gives $250,000 a year. Mm. Oh, I said, <laughs> do you think he would continue giving? If and, he wasn't on the board. And the executive said, we don't want to test that. <laughs> that, is, that is really tough. It is tough. The challenge there sometimes is sometimes other board members can appreciate that and say, okay, we know we've got Richard on the board because he's giving a quarter of a million dollars. We really need that. That's great. But you can probably make a similar story slash excuse 
for a number of board members, and then you end up with a, a board that doesn't have a an esprit de corps, where people don't feel like they're in it together because there are a bunch of people missing from meetings yeah, and sure. things like that. It's a slippery slope, I yeah. guess, right? And who's next in line after Richard, for whom there could be some compelling reason, right? Yeah. Interestingly, the chief executive officer has to be brilliant in regard to building a board. You don't elect board members, you select them. And then in in treating them, I have many CEOs who say you should spend 40% of your time as a CEO working with board members. Now, that's a lot of time. It is a lot of time, especially since I've heard other people say the CEO should be out dealing with donors 80% of the time. So right there, we're at 120%, and we haven't even managed the staff or anything else. Yeah, um, yeah 40% a lot. I would say, I think you're right that most executive directors need to spend more time with their boards, and I think they don't, they don't, they find it unpalatable and don't like to. And most of the time they spend is just getting people ready for board meetings, where exactly. maybe the most important time is in between. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I've seen um, uh, many people know I've worked for 25 years in Chicago with Northwestern Settlement House and my buddy Ron Manderscheid. And one of the things Ron has done masterfully, and I've watched him all these years, is exactly that. He spends a lot of time with board members individually, making sure people understand where the organization's going answering their questions, uh, making sure they don't have any misconceptions. And I think that is a significant piece of his success. And I always wish others would emulate him. I know I would have found it hard to do what he does, but it really does make a difference. Yeah. Now, let's say at a coming board meeting, you have a institutional change that you're going to decide on that will affect the organization for years to come. They're the CEO and the chairman of the board if they want to make sure that it's passed. And it's something that's right in the middle right now. Mm -hmm. They need to work with the board members before each board meeting to make sure that everybody knows what the item is, how important the board meeting will be, and how the CEO and the board chair feel the voting should go. So that takes a lot of time. It certainly does. Yeah. Yes. So along the same lines, we've talked about founders. We've talked about founding board members, founding CEOs. We've talked about the CEO needing to be involved in building the board, though we often have a nominating or governance committee, and they're supposed to be doing it as well. What about this whole issue then of the fact that the CEO is often reporting to a board she recruited herself? What do you see in terms of the balance of power and the issues that develop from that? Because it's very strange to be hiring your bosses. Yeah, and that so often happens. It's up to the CEO, a founding CEO, to build a board. So you're right. You go to your friends, your relatives, mm -hmm. your attorney, and they won't say no to you right. 
on important issues. And that happens again when the next ED or CEO comes. At the beginning, the CEO is reporting to that whole board that she inherited. Yeah. But over 15 years or so, most of the board will circulate, will be new. And most of those board members, that CEO will have had some role in bringing onto the board. So in, you almost end up with the same scenario. It might not have been their friends and family, but it's people who they helped bring on this, and uh, who came on because of them. Yeah. Because you're assuming any prospective board member is going to meet the CEO before taking the position. Yeah, sure. Right? So there's a, already that connection. Sure. That's tough. If you believe that the board is the future of the organization, building a board and then working with the board is so important. It's probably the most important thing a founder can do. But the founder is busy doing other things. Raising funds, doing programs, setting up chairs for meetings. Exactly. And so it becomes very difficult. My hat is off to executive directors because I was one twice and neither stint really worked out well. I have to admit I bristled at that board ED relationship. I found I was much more successful as a second in command. I found it very difficult to play the political role of the executive director with the board And I really admire people who have the tact, the long-term vision, and their ability to keep their eye on the prize and deal with that dynamic. I think it's really rough. So my hat is off to them. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Brian, um, another thing I think of, I'm not against brochures or folders, let's say for a campaign. And I think annual campaigns ought to have them also. But donors, I find, are turned off by fancy brochures. And the blind embossed uh, die-cut brochure is not appreciated. But worse than that, it's not read. Mm. And if the objective is to have a case that's read, it's not done through a fancy brochure. So I have to ask you a question, because I know you have a lot of things in your mind at the moment that we want to talk about. I'm assuming there was a relation to the board, right? And the board is donors and the material they get. I can just sense that that's sort of where you're going, because it starts with the board. It does. And those materials. A little bit about the board in terms of all those materials and what people are sharing with the board as they're trying to build those relationships. Yeah. If you're asking for money, a typical brochure is how people react to your children. Tolerated, (laughs) but not appreciated. (laughs) So board members, and that's part of how you coach your board members for your clients, and how we do it, and that is, what's the role of the brochure? Mm Mm-hmm. When do you bring it out? At what meeting of a probable donor do you use the brochure? And that's what's very important. We now put, I'll tell you what I like best. I use a three-ring binder, and my material goes into the three-ring binder. 
because no one has ever thrown away a three-ring binder. <laughs> and so the shelf life is much longer mm. than a brochure. And then a brochure with a, an envelope on the inside back cover, you've seen it, where you put in material. Mm -hmm. That material is almost never really read. Mm -hmm. So what do you do with this brochure? It probably cost, what, five or six dollars each, maybe more. And the three ring binder is so effective because what it says, we did not spend a lot of the campaign money mm -hmm. on the brochure. The campaign speaks for itself. And so how do we get a brochure? The objective of a brochure is to be read. And so you have to build a brochure that's going to be read. Mm. I love that idea about the binder, because you're right. You don't tend to throw a binder out. So you would take the papers out of it, maybe, and but that's another step you have to take, and that takes time. So you probably just put the binder aside. You hold on to it. Whether it gets read again or not, yeah. we don't know, but it doesn't get tossed in the basket. And your name is on the spine. Right, so they know. They know. Yeah. Great. Well, that's a great place to end this session, and we have plenty more to talk about. Thanks again, Jerry.